This episode of the World Soccer Talk podcast is presented by Sling. Coming up this weekend, we have all the title races from around Europe and around the world. Many of them are on Sling TV. Hello and welcome to the World Soccer Talk podcast. On this episode, we discuss the end of the European seasons in Germany and in England and elsewhere. Uh, and also, of course, I'm sure we'll, we'll be talking about uh, listener mailbag, answering your questions, reading out your comments, plus much, much more. My name is Christopher Harris. I'm joined by my co-host, Kartik Krishnaya. Kartik, looking at this past weekend's uh, coverage of soccer from around the world, just a few things that jumped out. I mean, it, it was a really exciting weekend. Uh, if anyone missed it, you missed a, a, a huge, tremendous uh, crazy weekend. Everything from the Bundesliga title race going down to the final seconds. Uh, Luton Town promoted back to the top flight for the first time since 1992. Hamburg fans mount a pitch invasion only to find out that they're not automatically promoted uh, to the Bundesliga after all. Everton survived final day of the season despite uh, Leicester winning their game. Kartik, um, what was your favorite moment from the weekend? It's probably hard, hard to pick one, but I mean, of, of course, there was also Sheffield Wednesday uh, winning their championship, uh, their, their playoff final. Carlisle winning, winning their playoff final. Uh, it That's was quite my least a weekend. favorite moment, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm a Carlisle Carl winning. Yeah. yeah. Right. But, so what was your favorite moment? What was the, the moments that you enjoyed the most from this past weekend? Uh, enjoyed, well, I guess the. Again, the Stockport uh, defeat that I got uh, up early to watch on Sunday morning and the Dortmund not getting the job done. Although, look, there was a lot of controversy in that match itself, uh, the match with, with Mainz. Uh, those were the two, uh, uh, the two kind of down moments for me. Although the, the, the final day of the Bundesliga was, was amazing, right? It was amazing drama. Just not the result I would have hoped for at the top. Uh, at the bottom, it was a, a pretty dramatic day also with, with Schalke going down. You mentioned Hamburg's pinch invasion. They're going to now play Stuttgart in the relegation playoff. And that's a, uh, a battle of two huge clubs. Hertha uh, Berlin, which is a very big club, uh, already has had gone down. And Bochum uh, get a, a victory over a very good Leverkusen team to stay in the division. Uh, for another year. Not something I thought was possible. So Bundesliga was exciting. Serie A was exciting, right? The Milan-Juventus match. Uh, although I think maybe Juventus has quit, given what's happened. Um, but that was still, I think, a good match. Atalanta and Inter. Uh, that that result uh, sealed Champions League for Inter and eliminated Atalanta. But it was a back-and-forth match. Really stretched match. Uh, obviously, Inter is now in the Champions League final. They can... Uh, they can rest easy this final match in Serie A. And then, as you mentioned, the Premier League and the, the Championship playoff final. Also want to mention the League One final today went the distance between uh, Barnsley and Sheffield Wednesday. Went 120 minutes. It didn't go to penalties, but went the distance in terms of playing. So a great weekend in, in Italy and in Germany and in England. Uh, so much going on. But this is, this is what, unfortunately, Chris... Uh, I mean, maybe this is a subject for the whole summer. This is unfortunately what the domestic leagues, and particularly MLS, has to compete with. I mean, I, I can't imagine sitting and watching MLS Saturday night after that dramatic day in Germany. Uh, Italy, the two matches I mentioned were on Saturday, the two big matches. And then um, uh, the championship playoff final. And, you know, yeah. then sitting and watching MLS after, I, with inconsequential matches, I can't imagine. Yeah, none, none, none of these storylines we just talked about uh, would have been possible if promotion and relegation didn't exist in Europe. Um, and, and to me, yeah, for Saturday night, it was a rare Saturday night where I didn't watch MLS uh, season pass. I have the subscription, but just wasn't interested. I mean, I had so many, I mean, just highs and lows on Saturday watching some incredible matches, then followed through on Sunday for, for more of that. Um to me personally, just completely disinterested in MLS this this weekend. Um, next weekend or midweek will be a different story. Well, how can as I forget games? Sorry, Chris. Union Berlin qualified for Champions League. I mean, that that's probably yeah. one of the biggest stories of all. I totally want. That's how big this weekend was. I forgot about that. And Schalke going down yeah, again, club. right? Yeah, massive club in Germany, and uh, yeah, it, it's the actual title race in the Bundesliga. Um, 
that match um, with uh, Borussia Dortmund and Mainz, I'm sick and tired of people saying that the Bundesliga VAR is so much better than VARs in other countries. Yes, it's better than the Premier League VAR. But to me personally, all VAR is pretty bad. I've seen really bad calls in MLS where I'm, I'm, I'm like screaming at the TV, like, where is the VAR in this clear and obvious mistake here? How come it's, it's not being used? Maybe it's being used, but we don't know because we don't get to hear or see uh, any feedback. It's kind of a, it happens behind the scenes. The Bundesliga, there was a couple of calls easily in that uh, Dortmund match. Uh, and we've seen in previous weeks too, but with, with Dortmund especially, yeah. where it looks like they should have gotten a penalty or yep. they should have gotten, you mean, and they didn't get it. And, and and the referee didn't go to the monitor. So we're like, okay, well, I guess they thought it wasn't a foul. I, okay, so I don't want to sound bitter or angry, but I kind of am because I it happened against Balcom a couple of weeks ago, as you mentioned, and it happened twice in this game against Mainz. I don't recall those sorts of non-calls, or not even not just non-calls, non looking at the monitor in Bayern matches in that same stretch. Uh, maybe it's just a coincidence. Probably it's just a coincidence, but it's a bad coincidence, right? It really puts a, a, a damper on on the Bundesliga season. Uh, for those who haven't checked the table, Bayern won the title again, but they won it on goal difference. They were level on points. So uh, one more point, or actually uh, it, it, they were both draws. So one of those draws turns into wins for Dortmund and they win the title. Either of those two matches we're talking about. Yeah, having said that, Kartik, I thought Dortmund were pretty bad in that game against Mainz. I mean, in terms of just, they looked so predictable moving forward. I mean, Mainz had a, you know, like playing five at the back uh, and then basically all, all, all 10 men on on the outfield kind of uh, behind the ball. But but defensively, they were sound. But it wasn't until uh, Gio Reyna came on the pitch that uh, Dortmund looked like they could unlock that defense as far as some quick passes, one-twos. And all of a sudden, they get closer and closer to scoring, get a couple of uh, late goals and even tie it up. But then you run out, run out of time. Um, that was, I mean, we've seen some comments on, on worldsoccertalk.com just saying, I mean, I think it was, might have been Mercator said that how disgusting this was because essentially this is the best chance for a team outside of Bayern Munich to win the title in over a decade. It's basically handed to them on, on a silver platter and they can't get over the line. And what what does that say about the rest of the teams in the Bundesliga with Bayern slipping up? Um, I mean, it, it just it's not a good look for the Bundesliga. It, it, for the neutral, it was exciting, right? For me, I, I was m- my wife and I were watching the game. We were screaming and shouting at the television. I mean, hoping that that Dortmund uh, would win the game, get a late goal. It didn't happen. Uh, but from the sheer excitement and entertainment, um, it, it's hard to hard to. Beat that, yeah. And Cologne, Cologne had every opportunity to, to to salvage a draw, actually to win the game against Bayern. They were really good. Uh, they had one defensive let off, which uh, Musiala took advantage of late. Uh, that's all you need, right? And and uh, uh, what was really interesting in the in the Dortmund match is Bellingham wasn't fully fit, so he couldn't start. Then Adi Yemi gets injured really early in the match, which was which was bad. Uh, Ulian Brandt is playing centrally, and he's not influencing the match from a central position. And uh, it felt like at that point, Dortmund were out of ideas. You're absolutely right. I mean, uh, there was uh, uh, a a tactical reshuffle, kind of throwing more attackers on. And you mentioned Giorena played very well when he came on, unlocked their defense. And then I think Bellingham coming on as well, uh, the 30 minutes he could give or or so uh, helped kind of changed the trajectory of the match, but not enough. I mean, there were some sitters. Obviously, Haller missed the penalty, but he also missed a, a ball that was right at his feet uh, that he could have touched yep. in. Uh, there was a uh, a couple opportunities for headers in the box, which uh, Dortmund players missed. And then uh, really some amateurish defending from Hummels and Sula, two former Bayern players um, uh, in, you know, on the second mind's goal. And and ultimately, that's what decided it. Actually, that 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 particular goal, uh, they were opened up, and uh, yeah, I mean, they probably I'm I'm cons- upset about those non calls, but they probably didn't deserve it. All they had to do was win this match at home against the Mainz team that had lost four four on the trot, uh, and uh, they weren't able to do it. So, uh, but uh, at the same time, as I said, a lot of excitement with Union Berlin qualifying for the Champions League. Uh, 
you know, very, what a story. Hertha Berlin has all kinds of money. They are the bigger club in Berlin, and they have all this investment in the club. They're one of the only teams that has foreign investors that have, that have put money into, uh, into Hertha, you know, as part of the 49 uh, in the, uh, on the other side of the 50 plus one. And uh, um, they're relegated while Union, which is this plucky kind of hipster club in Berlin from, from the old East Berlin is qualifying for Champions League. Balkum, as I mentioned, uh, granted, they got a, maybe a cheap point against Dortmund, as we talked about. But still, pretty remarkable that they stay in the division at the same year that Schalke and Hertha go down. So, uh, well done to Balkum, getting, getting a result. They had to get a result of some sort against Leverkusen, and they got all three points. Um, granted, I think Leverkusen may have quit after the, uh, the Europa League, the way they went out of the Europa League against Roma the previous week. But what a, uh, what a final day. Uh, in the Bundesliga, but kind of marred by by Dortmund not getting over the hump. And uh, this makes us think, once again, you know, 11 successive years of the same champion, this is not the case in any other European league. There are European leagues that are duopolies, Scotland, Austria, uh, some others. But you're seeing um, every other league, I think, is more competitive. I, I know there's this impression that PSG dominate France, and they win the title most seasons. But uh, we've seen Lille win a title. We've seen Monaco win a title. Uh, and we saw Lance push them this season, right? Really push yep. them. So I think the Germany has a perception problem that uh, has probably gotten worse this week. Yeah, the perception problem is what if it takes another 11 years to get a team to get that close to winning the title hopefully it won't be that that it won't, won't be another 11 years of having to wait that long to see someone to really kind of uh, go above uh, Bayern Munich but you mentioned uh, Union Berlin and uh, plucky was the word that you mentioned well looking at the championship uh, playoff final uh, Luton Town very plucky as was as is Coventry City both of the teams in the championship with some of the lowest wages among the whole entire division. However, you mean reached the final through the playoff system and uh, Luton Town eventually uh, get get the win and lift the trophy and off they go into the Premier League. Uh, Kartik, I, I, we didn't get a chance to talk to you on, on Friday's podcast, but uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you got a lot, a lot of love for Coventry and Luton. What's your take on Luton this summer? I mean, so basically, I mean, is is this a total rebuild? I mean, will they invest the money, or are they going to try to figure out a way to get this team to play the way that they're doing in the Premier League? So this was a, a tough call for me this match because I like both clubs, as you mentioned, and uh, Coventry. I think we're in a position where financially they have issues. A club has just been sold. They have a problem with their ground where there's a very malign person named Mike Ashley who has bought the uh, Rico Arena or whatever it's called now. Uh, and we've seen in previous years Coventry, because of the ground problems, having to go ground share with uh, Birmingham City at St. Andrews, go to Northampton, which is like 35 miles away, and play a, a season there. So um, I, I think they needed promotion in the sense that they would have gotten this influx of cash. Uh, but um, I, I, I do think that they were probably less equipped than to turn around and compete, even though they're a much bigger club than Luton. So should mention that Coventry, uh, pretty decorated history. Uh, they, they, they have big fan base. Coventry is a, there's a reason they're Coventry City and Luton is Luton Town. So I'll just yep. start with that, right? It's it's a bigger place. They've got a bigger fan base, but I think they had some mitigating circumstances, which they brilliantly overcame this season under Mark Robbins. Also, uh, the Commonwealth Games disrupted their season, and they, they had a bunch of matches in hand and at one point were in the drop zone. Uh, but they may not have been able to spend the money that I think Luton will be able to spend this summer. And in Edwards, as their manager, they have a guy who built Forest Green playing a certain style of football. Um, Luton under Nathan Jones were a much more organized defensive team. And now um, under him, they're playing a much more attractive open style, although their goal was very direct, right? That was kind of Nathan Jones style football with, yep. with Adebayo uh, getting loose on, on a what was a counterattack or a direct move. But I think they're they're equipped to where they can spend a little bit of money. I, I think a lot of people know Luton 
uh, for two reasons. One, they've either traveled through Luton Airport, which is, by the way, one of the five busiest airports in the UK. A lot of the holiday uh, travel discount airlines. uh, If you want an example, like a U.S. comparison, it's a lot like uh, Chicago Midway Airport or or, uh, one of those types of airports, which a lot of discount airlines fly to, Love Field in Dallas. Um, Mm -hmm. So Luton Airport is kind of emerged as an alternate airport for London. Uh, a lot of people fly through there, so they know Luton. And then also the Bruce Springsteen, uh, the film about the Springsteen fan, uh, Blinded by the Light, that takes place in Luton. And that takes place in Luton at a time in the late 1980s when Luton Town was at their absolute height in terms of football. They had several significant black players, including Ricky Hill, who I, who I know quite well. And... Um, and, and yet there was all this racial tension in the town as is portrayed in, in Blinded by the Light. So it's actually kind of an interesting uh, time to have Luton back in the Premier or back in the top flight, um, especially given t- – I'll never forget the playoff final they played against Wimbledon in the uh, conference. And when Luton lost that final to AFC Wimbledon, which was this supporter-owned kind of Phoenix club, I was like, shoot, Luton is never going to be back. They're never going to be back in the big time. They can't even get out of the conference. They're losing to a supporter-run team. And uh, 10 years later, they're in the Premier League. So anything can happen in football. Uh, Anything can happen in an open system in football, I should say. And, and that's the thing about Luton, too, next season. Uh, even if they go down next season, uh, it's going to be an adventure, seeing games, seeing uh, Erling Haaland and, and all these superstars uh, at Kenilworth Road, uh, trying to figure out a way to get on the pitch and, and, and also get, have the fans right on top of them. Uh, it's one of the most... Uh, it reminds me a lot of Vicarage Road, how that used to look like in the probably the, the 90s uh, with Watford, and they've completely redeveloped it now. It looks like a modern stadium. But Luton's uh, Kenilworth Road is going to be a sight to see. <laughs> and what a loyal set of fans. I remember yeah, and yeah, this yeah. was the time when they were in the conference and I was working uh, as the communications director at the NASL. The number of people from Luton that contacted me saying, hey, how can we watch Tampa Bay Rowdies games? Because Ricky Hill, like I mentioned, Luton legend, was the Rowdies coach. He wasn't even playing, right? But they wanted to watch this former legend of their club Um who would come of age under David Pleat. Uh, I think a lot of people know David Pleat as a commentator who listens to this podcast. Yep. Um, he was the manager of Luton in, in the, the early to mid-1980s. Uh, but there were so many Luton fans who were like, I still, we still want to track what Ricky Hill's doing. How, what are the, uh, the, the online links so we can watch Rowdy's games at 4 o'clock in the morning in the UK? I mean, it was crazy. They have such loyal fans. So a few minutes ago, we talked about Borussia Dortmund and uh, going to looking now at the Premier League and the, and the relegation battle uh, and how bad Borussia Dortmund was uh, to me. Uh, I thought Leeds United was just as just as bad, if not worse. I mean, just a, a really pathetic display. I thought Rodrigo had a bunch of chances. Um, Patrick Bamford didn't start the game because of uh, fitness injury problems, but um just a really horrible way to end the season. I mean, the fans screaming and shouting at them. Uh, you're not fit to wear the shirt. And if you saw the scenes at the end of Ellen Road, uh, you could see how upset the fans were. Because I think in many ways, I think they felt that the the players didn't really go for it. It seemed to be a really abject performance. Um, really, I, I think we saw kind of how poor this Leeds United team is unfortunately i mean we would have liked to see them stay up in terms of their rabid fan base but i i was just shocked at the animosity from the fans directed at the players at the end of this game i'm not sure if you caught that kartik um yeah i read about it after i mean i was uh uh i have partiality to everton which i think everybody now realizes so i was uh ecstatic that they had stayed up i wasn't uh, really concerned about Leeds. I, I'm, I'm sorry to Leeds fans. I mean, I, I'm not trying to be crass about it, but um, I wasn't. I wasn't paying attention to what was going on there. But I found out about it after, and I understand the frustration of Leeds supporters. I mean, this is a club that's a big club. Uh, Leeds is the fourth largest metro or urban area in the UK, uh, and it's uh, obviously it's a bit of a rugby town also. So I'm not. I'm not saying that. It's a one-club town. It is in, in terms of football, but um, they, it's also a place where another sport's really well-supported, unlike a lot of towns in the UK. But um, I, I really feel for Leeds supporters because I don't think the effort has been there for 
a while with leads. I, I, I just don't think uh, – I think you had a, a number of players who would come into the league uh, from other places under whatever circumstances that weren't um, com- completely committed to the cause uh, the way that they needed to be. And I do think there is also a real issue with how Leeds United has been run uh, in this post-Bielsa t- time and, and how uh, dysfunctional the relationship between the 49ers uh, enterprises and Rod Rosani's ownership group has been and uh, the sacking of Victor Orta uh, I, uh, four weeks before the end of the season. You know, you're sacking your director of football. I, I, and uh, uh, you, you, I, I can completely understand the frustration. And this is a club that whose supporters had been through so much when Ken Bates was the owner. Right. Well, first, Peter Ridsdale, who is from Leeds, that destroyed the club. And then Bates um, effectively used different financial maneuvers and uh, Hollywood accounting, if you will, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, uh, to keep control of the club while plunging the club into greater debt, making mortgaging Ellen Road, losing the training ground and taking it over over the course of two years, a 30 point deduction. So that's what Leeds fans have been through in the last 15 years or so. So I can feel for them. Um, I mean, I ultimately, as someone who's partial to Everton, glad that they went down instead of Everton. But I can totally relate to their ang- anger at, at the ownership and at uh, players who, quite frankly, quit. I don't think uh, I saw the commitment level from a lot of Leeds players. And this is a side, Chris, that two seasons ago under Bielsa were the fittest, most uh, crisp side in the division outside of Manchester City, right? And outside of Liverpool. They were the best team to watch. They were the most fit. They did the most running. I don't know what the heck happened to some of these guys. Yeah, to show you how to show you how bad this was, Kartik, um Jorginho uh, Ruta, the, the striker that they signed from Hoffenheim, which was a, a Leeds United club record fee, I think it was about thirty-two million pounds. Um hadn't played at all uh, under Sam Allardyce, but uh, Big Sam brought him on in the second half. Um, obviously didn't deliver in terms of, of goals there, but at the end of the game, um, uh, Ruta threw his uh, shirt into the crowd and the crowd, someone who, whoever caught it in the crowd, threw it back onto the field and it just sat there by the goalpost. Nobody, nobody was even bothered to pick it up. You mean so, so? I mean that that's just one example of of many in terms of just uh, how bad they got this wrong, and um, just a sad way, a sad way to end the season. And now you have a fan base that are really upset about about everything that's happened this season. Um, I, I think I think in terms of the transfer market, I think that's where Leeds United was let down in terms of the players that they signed. Didn't really. I mean, other than Tyler Adams, didn't really make the mark. I mean, didn't really make make a make the impression that they needed to 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 be a a Premier League side. And and at the end of the day, they deserve to go down. All right. What about Everton, Kartik? You mean you must have been uh, pleased at least in in terms of uh, them staying up and putting in a good performance at the end of the day, and, and Leicester winning their game. But unfortunately uh, for Leicester, with Everton uh, winning that match. Um, you mean basically Leicester went down, Everton stayed up. Yeah, Tarkowski uh, and uh, uh, and Mina had tremendous matches. Good time to restore Connor Cody to the squad. For some reason, Dyche hasn't liked him, and he hasn't played. He hadn't played in at least he hadn't started in like two or three months, uh, which uh, pretty stunning. That uh, Dyche obviously liked Michael Keane from having him at Burnley and had, had restored him to the side. I think that was a terrible mistake. But what what's really interesting that Dyche did is that he found a way to play Decore, uh, Ghana, and uh, um, Onana together in the same team, in the same lineup, which uh, made uh, Everton very hard to play through, maybe kind of easy to play around at times. And that's why there were games where they were shipping three and four goals, even though Dyche has a reputation as a very defensive manager. I think he's a pragmatist, right? He had a certain type of personnel at Burnley, adjusted to it, came to Everton, now is at Everton, played differently, right? They were certainly more open than you would have expected. Um, and they were in this match, but they got um, ultimately the goal from Decore, just a worldie. That's a, a strike worthy of keeping a team in the Premier League. And he's yep. a guy that's really flourished uh, under uh, under Daesh. It's, I think, appropriate he got the goal because he's the player that um, 
that has elevated his uh, game from Lamp from Lampard leaving and Dyche coming in. The rest of the Everton team, quite frankly, has not improved under Dyche. It's the same team it was under Lampard. And in fact, you could argue some guys have regressed. But Decore raising his game, and we know what an influential player he can be. And I've compared him to being kind of a poor man's Yaya Torre. Very kind of similar body type, uh, style of play, and influence. An ability to take those those uh, shots from distance, as we saw in this case. Um he he's getting he's gotten some performances that are Yaya Torre like out of him, Daishas. So ultimately, I think Decore, um, the appropriate guy to to score the goal to keep Everton in the league because I think he is the guy ultimately uh, who who was tasked by his manager to keep the team in the in the division uh, three four months ago when Daish took over, and he's the guy who delivered. Ultimately, Kartik, uh, all of these stories that we're talking about here too, uh, and it's not a uh, coincidence, but it's it's the big stories from the weekend. All of these stories involve promotion and relegation, either going for the title, winning the title during a regular, uh, meaningful season, or teams getting promoted, teams getting relegated. And to me, at the end of the day, I don't think there's any way that MLS can, can compete against this. They cannot compete against the excitement, entertainment, and meaningfulness of promotion and relegation. And I was thinking about this today as I was driving uh, around, and I was thinking to myself that in some ways I understand MLS's fans or fans of MLS clubs, kind of how they look at us or see what we say or hear what we say and think they just don't get it. And, and what, made, what made me think of this is too is that we're looking at it from a different lens so when you and I were fans of the the team in Miami that was in Major League Soccer um, years ago, and we would go to the games, I think for me personally, the the lens I was looking at was, I, and I would go to the games every other weekend. I was a season ticket holder. Uh, I went on dates there, had tailgate parties there. I got married. I got uh, I proposed to my wife on the pitch. Um, lots of memories. But my lens at that point was focused on, on one team, and that was Miami and, and what they were doing and would they win the next game and could they beat New York or could they beat this team or whatever it may, may be. My lens was focused on that one team, and I went to those games. I enjoyed myself, had some of the, the, the times of my, my life going to that, so many great memories. However, I think at this point in my life, I mean, my lens is completely different. My lens now is I'm watching the game from a global perspective. So I'm watching games from you know, Mexico, South America, Africa, Asia, you mean Europe, of course, and, and, and North America too. So when I'm watching the games, I'm watching it from a completely different level. And the lens I'm looking at is really kind of entertainment. I only have so much time in the day. So what games are the most entertaining and exciting to me and most meaningful too? Because if a game... Is exciting, that's one thing, but does it really matter? If it doesn't really matter, is it worth watching even if it's exciting? Is it better to watch a game that, that is exciting and meaningful? And and to me, it is. I wanted to get your take on that, Kartik, in terms of uh, the lens that you're looking at when, when you're watching games. Yeah, I mean, if you have a local story, I think it's meaningful, which is why I don't say that there are no meaningful games or no reasons to not support, to, to, to no reasons to support local uh, clubs in the United States. But of course, that's not limited to Major League Soccer. I mean, people who advocate for MLS also want to uh, dis, dis those of us who might go to NPSL matches locally or go to uh, go to uh, USL League 2 matches locally and, and say, well, that's not, you know, the only thing that matters is the 22 teams or whatever, now it's like 28 teams in MLS. And uh, if you're living in Colorado Springs, you don't need to follow the Colorado Springs USL team. You should be a Colorado Rapids fan. Uh, that sort of thing uh, really is condescending because there are compelling local stories and local angles, even in a closed league system, that can that can tie you to a club or tie you to the game. Ultimately, you don't have the upward mobility and the chance to be aspirational the way clubs in, in Germany and England and Italy, as we've just talked about, can be. But there are still some local stories. But a lot of the advocates of MLS, Chris, they don't want to hear about anything below MLS in the pyramid, and they don't want to hear about anything overseas. And what ends up happening as a result is a backlash. So I think uh, MLS represents kind of a gateway for a lot of people to to, to learn and, and understand and appreciate the beautiful game. 
And then they start watching matches from Argentina and Brazil and uh, Portugal and England and, and Italy and Germany, etc. And they they become aficionados of football culture and the global game. And oftentimes they just kind of quit on MLS at that point or they still like their local MLS club, but they don't care about the league as a whole. That's the part I think is different now, though, Kartik. You, you raise good points. And in the past, it would have been that MLS was almost like a gateway drug to open your mind to other, other drugs, uh, harder drugs. But I, I think now with MLS not on television, the likelihood that someone's going to stumble across an MLS game on a, a Sunday afternoon or a Saturday afternoon uh, is unlikely or less likely than it was before. So they're more likely to switch on ESPN or ESPN2 or, or I mean, whatever channel it may be, uh, or ESPN Plus at this point, right? Uh, and kind of come across a game, whatever game it is, La Liga, Bundesliga, uh, you name it, USL perhaps, and then see that and go, oh, wow, this is something. I mean, you, you watch the Bundesliga and immediately, to me, I'm drawn to the crowd. I'm like the, the fan base. The Cologne fans, right? It's the end of the season. Uh, it's their last last home game of the season. You look at the Cologne fans and the scarves and the singing and the atmosphere, and and you're drawn into that. And I, and I think in many ways too that maybe MLS. That's one of the fears about uh, being behind a big paywall system is that you don't get that kind of um, serendipity where you have somebody just coming across a game by accident and then going ahead and, and becoming a fan of that team, et cetera. All right, let's move on to our listener mailbag. Uh, we, we're going to talk about ESPN+. Plus. Speaking of ESPN+, Plus, first up is Anthony. Anthony says, again and again, no crowd noise, just a loud commentator for the Luton against Coventry playoff final and no atmosphere. ESPN commentators in a studio thousands of miles away and someone else controlling the volume of the crowd from the feed they are getting from Wembley. It ruins the game, and ESPN and other providers do it all the time. I always say it's like the commentators are right next to you, and the stadium is three blocks away. So this game, Kartik, would have been, uh, I think, Ian Dark and Stuart Robson, which you would think, right, they would have been at Wembley. They're both uh, living and working in England. Uh, oftentimes, sometimes Ian Dark and Stuart Robson might be in Bristol, Connecticut at ESPN Studios, um, in all likelihoods, not knowing the, the specifics, but in all likelihoods, they went to a studio in West London to call the game off a TV screen for the ESPN audience uh, or ESPN Plus audience. Um, but this is not just, I mean, this is just one example of many. We've seen this quite a few times, especially of late, right? I think where the crowd noise, you, mean, you know that the crowd noise is much louder. You can listen to the broadcast on radio and hear that it's much louder, and it does sound a lot muted. And we've we've seen this last few years, even with uh, Taylor Twellman and John Champion doing games where, you mean we were missing that. You too, Kartik? Yeah, yeah. John Champion was calling the the Dortmund game, right? Uh, kind of simultaneously, or just before, uh, clearly out of the studio. And I think some of the he he did, he had a great call, uh, but but yeah. the the. The atmosphere, which in Dortmund is incredible, normally, uh, and part and again maybe part of it was that they fell behind two goals early, but uh, it seemed kind of muted because of that that studio. Uh, by the way, uh, Stu Robson, a, a former Coventry player, so I, I he obviously understood the significance of the occasion. Uh, I I thought that um, it felt um, a little muted, also this broadcast, but Ian Dark kept reinforcing how into it the crowd was and how into it both <laughs> sections of supporters were. So maybe it felt like we were getting more than we usually get. And that, that was due to him constantly reinforcing that. I, th I thought it was the other way around to me personally. If I felt like uh, John Champion and Lutz uh, Fan and Steel were either at the stadium or because, because they kept on talking. Actually, John mentioned it a couple of times during the, the, the game broadcast uh, 12 hours before kickoff. Uh, I mean, we, we, we saw uh, kind of everyone outside the stadium like lining up and which he could have seen on social media or could have seen from you mean a spotter or whoever. I guess the shame of it, though, too. I mean, so the Ian Dark one with Stuart Robson definitely sounded like they were calling it from a studio. The shame of it is that they have a pitch side reporter, you mean, at Wembley on the pitch. Alexis was, was there uh, doing the, the post-match interviews, uh, um, interviews, yeah, etc. So... Yeah, it's um, 
and unfortunately at the end of the day it's it's i'm sure it's budget cuts right it's it's i mean to fly announcers all the way over to europe to call one game or to even have ian dark and stuart robson at wembley calling the game from there it, it's cheaper and easier to have them calling from a studio but the moments these times when we do notice the difference uh it can be frustrating it, it can be i mean really frustrating because we're like this could sound so much better if the actual commentators were at the stadium uh like it was for the i mean the the Everton match, right? You had the whole NBC crew right there, and you had Peter Drury, you know, kind of on on a sideline there, calling the game. Next up is uh, Dan. He wants to talk to us about promotion and relegation. I love promotion and relegation in Europe, but I think it's a barrier in the US as opposed to an enhancement, at least for now. Also, comparisons to the Premier League are misguided. Uh, that is the top league in the world. Better comparatives uh, here would be the Portuguese or possibly the French leagues. We should aspire to be uh, comparable to them in viewership, quality, and attendance. Not to say not to say we're on par with them, but that's a realistic target. Additionally, comparisons to the NFL and NBA are unfair. Those leagues benefit enormously from college sports. The college level gets huge views, and fans will follow players at their pro teams, among other things. There's not a lower uh, level driver like that for soccer. Similarly, uh, minor league baseball is very established as an affiliate arrangement that can also drive people to follow major league baseball teams and players that are out of market. Soccer needs to solve this issue of out of market fan following and loyalty. International friendlies are a great way to expand fan awareness of the sport, but really only serve one way from an out of market perspective. A U.S. fan in Chicago may begin to follow Manchester City if they play Chicago Fire, but people in Manchester are not going to become Chicago Fire fans. I believe a, a big key to success is expanding the feeling and impression that U.S. professional soccer is an important part of the larger soccer world. Kartik, what's your, what's your take on this one? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that all these things, these sorts of factors, there are other factors related to having an open system and a connected system. Um, but I think uh, uh, in general, you need to uh, get a way to drive uh, fans to clubs and have relevance in matches, in relevance in clubs and local stories. So I do agree to a certain extent with Dan that Pro-Rel is not the panacea. It doesn't solve everything. Okay, it's one of about five or six needed reforms in the game. So I, even though I'm an advocate for Pro-Rel and you are too, Chris, I don't want to. Uh, so I don't want to make it sound like I'm one of these people, like the people, a lot of people on Twitter who say, "Oh, if we open the system, everything changes." No, uh, but I do think building that relevance and building that connection that that supporters will have to clubs in their towns or in their neighborhoods. It doesn't have to be in their markets. This is another mis misconception. Um, is enhanced by having an open system and having connected leagues and, and promotion and relegation and U.S. soccer serving as a as a way to facilitate competition instead of getting in the way or trying to impede competition or trying to uh, encourage leagues to be predatory towards one another. So uh, there's a lot that has to change, and Pro-Rel is one part of it. I, dis I, I disagree with uh, Dan about uh, not being allowed to compare the, the Major League Soccer to the Premier League. And I know a lot of uh, listeners and a lot of uh, people online uh, really kind of go at me when when I start compar comparing Premier League TV viewership to Major League Soccer t TV viewership. And the reason I do that is because it wasn't that long ago uh, that the viewership for MLS games was greater, much greater on games on ESPN and ESPN2 than it was for Premier League matches on Fox Soccer Channel or Fox Sports, etc., now, Fox was in fewer homes than uh, ESPN, but still, in terms of the numbers of people watching those games, that was the starting point with Fox Soccer Channel, and, and it grew from there. And we've seen MLS numbers, for, for the most part, plateau. Uh, Premier League numbers from the last few, couple of years have really kind of plateaued too, but that have risen sharply from what they were, say, about 10 years ago uh, to where they are now. And still, for the big games uh, on NBC, we're getting numbers so, you know, Two, two million plus uh, for these big games, which uh, which hasn't happened in a long, long time. 
So I think a lot of people do get upset with me about that. Um, but I, I don't think it's, uh, yes, in terms of the playing ability, maybe the Portuguese league or the French leagues is a good comparison to at least look at those leagues in terms of how they're doing player to player, team to team. Do people even know how many how many folks were watching MLS in 1998 and 1999? I, 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 I don't think they realize what the television numbers were for MLS at the time. And at the same time, I was relying on watching uh, a taped two-hour thing on the Fox Regional uh, it was Sunshine Network in Florida, <laughs> yeah. Fox Regional thing to get to get Premier League updates. And I couldn't watch Serie A. I couldn't watch the Bundesliga. And MLS was getting, you know, really good viewership on ESPN in, that, in those days. And then it, it, it kind of collapsed, 2000, 2001. There was a little bump with uh, the Freddie Adu first game and then uh, um, uh, Beckham first game, first couple games uh, for LA in 2007. But really, you know, MLS had more viewers um, when they had 10 teams uh, or 12 teams in the league from 96 to 99, then they kind of get now on average. It's, it's really remarkable when you think about it. Do you remember what those numbers were, Kartik, off, off the top of your head? I don't, but they were, they were much higher than uh, um, we would have to do some research to find them again. But the, the numbers were, go I, were good at the time. And yeah, in fact, I think I the first MLS Cup was is maybe still the most watched MLS game ever. It was one of them, at least. So we, we had regular season games that were above 500,000 viewers, if I remember correctly. Some, some, some big numbers, really big numbers. And at the time, Fox Soccer Channel had uh, their average for the Premier League was 90,000. And 90,000 is where we are right now, basically, with uh, Major League Soccer on, on FS1, those, those games. Yes, there's fewer cable subscribers now than it was back in, in 10 years ago. But... Um, but a lot of people forget that, or a lot of people actually don't know that in terms of those numbers and uh, only kind of look at the history from, like, say, the last five years and, and talk about that. But um, there was but, yeah, a, there me... was an ABC broadcast of a DC United game. I remember Marcelo Gallardo, the great manager now, did such a great job at River Plate. He was playing for DC at the time. I want to say this was in 2008, 2009. I remember that game had 1.2 million viewers and being stunned by the number and like, my God, no Premier League game gets this. And I, I think I wrote an article, Chris, that you you refuted uh, at the time, and you proved to be right over time. But at the time, I was saying, look, MLS is the driver of fandom. Look at these numbers. Look at this 1.2 million. Let's look look at this 800,000 for another game. Premier League's never getting those numbers. And then it abruptly shifted after that uh, to where it's basically the exact opposite now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, next up is Chris. Chris says, uh, hi, guys. When it comes to relegation battles in European leagues uh, versus MLS Decision Day, I have to say that it is absolutely no contest because the drama of a relegation battle has much more impact than simply missing the playoffs on Decision Day in MLS. For a majority of MLS clubs, missing the playoffs is no big deal, though if it's a big club like uh, Seattle or LA Galaxy, then it will likely result in changes and loss of fan interest. Um, as their place in the league is secure. Contrast this with a, a relegation battle where a, a club's financial fate, and in many cases, their existence is largely dependent on, on it, uh, if they stay in the top flight or not. In my view, Apple is going to have a difficult time come October marketing decision day because there is largely no impact in missing the playoffs for the majority of MLS clubs. And, and we saw that even from the the Everton match, um, I think in terms of seeing the tears, I mean, there were tears of joy, but I think a lot of it was tears of relief. Uh, the agony that you saw with people like holding their heads, but internally with, within Goodison, um, you mean, if Everton went down, guaranteed there'd be layoffs. You mean, people that would have been at the club for, for years, uh, some of them probably decades would have been let go. There's financial implications of relegation, and we'll see that at Leeds United. Uh, we'll see that at Southampton. Um, we will see that at Leicester, I'm sure, that there will be people, people laid off internally, not just the players, but the actual staff itself. And uh, with missing out on the playoffs for MLS clubs, yeah, fans will be disappointed. But for the, the next season, it's same again, right? And really nothing really changes. Next up, uh, this one should be interesting for you in particular, Kartik, and, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners too. It's from uh, Christopher Dubert, and uh, he says, I was a general counsel 
of DC United from November 2018 to March 2021. I think your recent podcast was spot on. I recently wrote an academic publication on legal and financial issues in Major League Soccer that may be of interest. Uh, Here's an excerpt. MLS's resistance to international soccer leagues hosting official matches in the United States is not surprising. While MLS and some news outlets uh, discuss the rise of soccer fandom in the United States, such polls rarely, if ever, distinguish between leagues. Indeed, a significant portion of individuals identifying as soccer fans in the U.S., are fans of the better European leagues and not necessarily MLS. For example, the Premier League is uh, popular in the United States, as evidenced by the $2.7 billion television deal with NBC Sports for the the league's American broadcast rights from 2022 to 2028. Similarly, uh, La Liga sought to capitalize on the large and wealthy American market by playing matches there, but these uh, such matches would undoubtedly uh, have drawn casual soccer fans away from MLS games. MLS's reaction to this, um, MLS's uh, reaction is thus understandable um, in that they don't want these games to be played in the United States from La Liga or Premier League or other leagues. Um, but that does not mean it is legal. On remand, the case is likely to eventually be assessed pursuant to the rule of reason under antitrust law. To avoid legal liability and related treble uh, damages, FIFA and USSF, uh, the United States Soccer Federation, and realistically, MLS will need to show that the policy has a pro-competitive rationale. Such a defense could be problematic for MLS from a public relations perspective. In essence, the soccer organizations may have to argue that without the territorial restrictions, MLS would struggle to exist as a product for American consumers. In other words, MLS is so unable to compete against the European leagues that the only way to ensure that America can have a high-level professional league is to prohibit European leagues from encroaching into the American soccer market. Aside from the negative uh, perception associated with such an argument, MLS would indeed have big problems if the policy was found to be illegal. If that were the case, one would expect several international soccer leagues to seek to host regular season matches in the United States, and one would expect that many soccer fans would indeed choose to spend their uh, limited discretionary income to see matches from leagues with better talent and reputations than Major League Soccer. What's your take on this one, Kartik? Yeah, I, I think uh, that's really, and thank you for writing us. I mean, it's 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 great to have some uh, legal backup from someone who was in the uh, in the field and in the know um, in, ter- in terms of this. And this is the other thing I found, um, Chris, so much of um, my uh, sourcing and this may shock MLS fans, and they might think there's a disloyalty going on with people. But uh, so much of my sourcing and so much of my information that uh, that says that 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 has concerns about MLS's business model and business practices and their comp- competitiveness in the marketplace come from people who have worked in the league. Um, that may shock some people who listen to this podcast. You know this, Chris, because oftentimes we you know cross check each other's sources and stuff. And and I, and I told you, hey, you know this. This source worked at at uh, Kansas City or at uh, Colorado, and uh, there is a general sense of a lot of people who know um, legal frameworks and know how the sport is structured in, in other countries, or know how uh, even sport other sports leagues are structured in the United States that have concerns about whether MLS can be competitive long term as a standalone product uh, with their their current structure and their current business practices. So none of this surprises me. And, Thank you. This is some fantastic uh, information. I actually probably need to take some more time to wrap my head around what 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 you've written and what was in that that academic presentation you gave. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me too because I have uh, people that follow me and I follow them and and they write about MLS as an example. And on social media, on Twitter, they're fighting back against me whenever I mention promotion relegation and the benefits of it or if I write something that uh, they believe is uh, derogatory or it puts them on the defensive. 
oftentimes, I mean, what I'm dealing with is is, is facts, but also opinions at times, right? We're, this is what this podcast is all about. Uh, our opinions, uh, talking about it, sharing them, as well as uh, you, the listeners, sharing your opinions, and, and we discuss it. And some of the people, some of the, the MLS writers that write all these kind of um, really positive things about MLS and will defend Major League Soccer and will attack me on social media, will then follow up with me through WhatsApp and say, well, I don't actually believe those things, but I, I kind of have to say these things in order to really kind of uh, stay as an MLS journalist or a, as a writer that writes about MLS. Because if I start saying that, well, how I really feel about promotion and relegation, I'll probably lose some of my audience. And that's sad. That, that's really sad. I mean, again, a lot of people hate us. A lot of people love us. Some people are indifferent to us. But what we say here, we're speaking our minds. This is how we really feel. And we get hit with so much criticism. Uh, we try to deflect it, but sometimes it does It does hit home with us sometimes. It, it, I mean, we, we are not probably not the most loved podcasters in this world, but we're honest. We're truthful. This is how we feel. And, and it changes from time to time, right? Um, at, at the end of the day, we all want soccer to succeed. So my goal in my life, especially with World Soccer Talk, is to grow the game, is to really grow the game. Uh, it's not to grow Major League Soccer, it's to grow the game. And, and the game of soccer is bigger than MLS. And maybe MLS is a big part of that. But to me, it's not all about MLS. It's all about, all about soccer in this country from the grassroots all the way up to the highest level. So, yeah, so when people do message me privately and, and say these things, say that they're, well, well I'm not going to be, I'm not being completely honest, uh, they say, on social media. To me, that that's sad. That's really sad. All right, Kotick, uh let me see what's up next. Okay, right. This let the listeners know if you do have any feedback for us, uh, your honest opinions, let us know. We'd love to read those out on air. There's a bunch of different ways you can reach us. Um, you can reach us through email, which is web at worldsoccertalk.com, facebook.com slash worldsoccertalk, Twitter is at worldsoccertalk, uh, the website, worldsoccertalk.com. Click on podcasts, leave your comments in the latest uh, comment thread. And uh, voicemail is 561-247-4625. Kartik, where can uh, listeners um, find your writings uh, and, and also fellow writers and also uh, podcasts from now, uh, now and again on Beyond the 90? Yeah, it's uh, beyondthe90.substack.com. And uh, going to do a review of, uh, of the season in England, uh, a lot of uh, uh, stuff about U.S. Open Cup and the Bundesliga title race recently. But uh, look back at England probably in the next uh, next week, uh, particularly after the FA Cup final on Saturday. So that's uh, beyondadani.substack.com. And you can, of course, always find me on Twitter at KKFLA737. Yeah, and that's the thing, too. I mean, the soccer season, the Premier League is over uh, as well as the football league but there is much much more to come like Kartik mentioned too you got the FA Cup you've got the uh, FIFA U20 uh, World Cup of course uh, you've got the uh, DFB Pokal final um, Europa League final Champions League final uh, also the end of the Serie A season the Bundesliga playoffs Major League Soccer too USL uh, Nisa etc so US Open Cup coming up too all right, on behalf of everyone at World Soccer Talk, thank you for listening and heading into another week of soccer from around the world. Kartik, what are you going to do and what should the listeners do? Enjoy your football.